big 10-inch Reckin' up playing the players of the Aerosmith got off to a solid start with their debut album and avoided the sophomore jinx with their second Get Your Wings, but it was with the release of their third, Toys in the Attic, released on April 8th, 1975, that the band's career truly took off. I'm Kelly Parker with 94.3 The Drive music director Mike Young. Hi there. Inducting Toys into the Drive Rock of Fame. Yeah, two albums in Aerosmith had pretty much established itself with a rock following, but this album was an effort to maintain that fan base while trying for the crossover chart success that still eluded them. When the band began sessions at the record plant in New York, they were under the gun in that sense, but after years of live shows and now heavy touring behind those first two albums, they were better prepared to record than ever before. Yeah, at the production helm was Jack Douglas, the now legendary producer of John Lennon's Double Fantasy, Cheap Trick, and Winnipeg's Harlequin, who the band had worked with on Aerosmith's previous album, Get Your Wings. And according to Douglas, quote, Aerosmith was a different band when we started the third album. They'd been playing Get Your Wings on the road for a year and had become better players. Different. It showed in the riffs that Joe and Brad brought back from the road for the next album. Toys in the Attic was a much more sophisticated record than the other stuff they'd done. And in his autobiography, Joe Perry elaborated on that. He said, our first two albums were basically comprised of songs we'd been playing for years live in the clubs. With Toys, we started from scratch. Making this record, we learned to be recorded artists and write songs on a deadline. In the process, we began to see just what Aerosmith could accomplish, with everyone throwing in ideas. Toys was our breakthrough. That breakthrough was facilitated by Jack Douglas. In the studio, he moved into the slot of really the sixth member of the band. But the band members weren't entirely starting from scratch. All their touring helped road test some of the new material. And Perry later noted, saying that we had an idea of what songs were working for us live at that point. And so we kind of had an idea of what direction we wanted the songs to go in. We knew we wanted to play some up-tempo songs, some shuffle songs, and some blues rock, but though we knew what kind of songs we wanted, we didn't really know how it was all going to turn out. Yeah, and as far as Steven Tyler was concerned, whatever pressure the band might have been feeling was really secondary to his own growing belief that Aerosmith could stand shoulder to shoulder with any of the greats. He said, I knew we'd made it. He wrote in, Does the Noise in My Head Bother You? That's his memoir. He said, I was the kid who put my initials in the rock because I wanted the aliens to know I was there. How very Steven Tyler of him. Uh, he definitely believes in aliens. <laughs> Woo! It's a statement of longevity. The record will be played long after you're dead. Our records would be up there in the attic, too, with the things that you loved and never wanted to forget. And to me, Aerosmith was becoming that. I knew how the Beatles, the Animals, and the Kinks did it with lyrics and titles. I saw reason and rhyme in all the lunacy that we were concocting. One piece the band was concocting evolved from a riff Perry had in mind that grew out of a desire to write something funky. The song originated in December of 1974 when Aerosmith was opening for... Another Winnipeg connection, the Guess Who, in Hawaii. And during soundcheck, Perry was messing around when the riff just came out. When Steven Tyler heard Perry playing that riff, he ran out and sat behind the drums and they jammed. Tyler scattered nonsensical words initially to feel where the lyrics should go before adding them in later. And when the group was halfway through recording Toys in the Attic, they found themselves stuck for material and decided to give the song Perry had come up with in Hawaii a try, but it didn't have lyrics or a title yet. Notice anything about that anecdote? No Joey Kramer. Well, he's really not necessary. Apparently has never been necessary. So that night at the hotel, Tyler wrote lyrics for the song, but left them in the cab on the way to the studio the next morning. 
Also, very Steven Tyler. He says, I must have been stoned. All the blood drained out of my face and no one believed me. They thought I never got around to writing them. The musical equivalent of the dog ate my homework. I left the lyrics in the cab. Yeah. Upset at the time, he took a cassette tape with the instrumental track that they had recorded and a portable tape player with headphones and disappeared into the stairwell. He grabbed a few number two pencils. I believe the thickness of the pencil, very important to the story, but forgot to take paper. Again, very Steven Tyler. So he wrote the lyrics on the wall at the record plant's top floor and then down a few stairs in the back stairway. (laughs) He could have gone and gotten paper. Like, this is just hindsight. I know it's 2020, but he could have gone back down and gotten paper. Once you're sitting down, though, very difficult to get up. Understood. So after two or three hours of writing on the wall, he ran downstairs for a legal pad at that point, ran back upstairs and copied his lyrics off the wall. This makes way too much sense if you're thinking of Steven Tyler. (laughs) Uh, The title and chorus would come from producer Jack Douglas after he'd seen the Mel Brooks film Young Frankenstein during a break in the sessions. And there was this one scene where one of the movie characters says, walk this way, Perry told Ultimate Guitar, and Jack began fooling around with that line and did the imitation of it from the movie. And so it became a great title for the song. And Stephen went ahead and wrote the eventual lyrics. The great Marty Feldman as Igor. The other hit from the album is Sweet Emotion, which many believe Tyler wrote about the tension and hatred between the band members and Joe Perry's wife. Tyler himself has said that only some of the lyrics were inspired by Perry's wife. Aerosmith's tell-all autobiography Walk This Way tells of the feuds between the band members' wives, including an incident involving spilled milk where Alyssa Perry threw milk on Tom Hamilton's wife, Terry. Literal spilled milk. Yeah, literally spilled milk, which is not very rock and roll, but apparently that's what happened. Now, that may have helped lead to the band's original lineup dissolving in the uh, early 1980s, and also plenty of drugs. Uh, Steven Tyler later told author Stephen Davis that original Aerosmith manager Frank Connolly sold his management stake in the band to New York management firm Lieber Krebs. On Sweet Emotion, we used these backward hand claps and the four of us in the studio chanting, F you, Frank. And if you play it backward, you can hear that. Perhaps the most ambitious recording on the album is You See Me Crying. It's a complex piano ballad that was heavily orchestrated. Douglas brought in an orchestra for the song, which is written by Tyler and outside collaborator Don Solomon. While Aerosmith were planning the back in the Saddle concert tour and recording the Done With Mirrors album in 1984, Tyler, who was suffering from memory loss at the time from years of hard drug use, that explains leaving the lyrics in the cab and forgetting the notepad in the stairway. (laughs) And writing on the wall for three hours, then getting the notepad. Uh, He heard the song on the radio, liked it so much, he suggested that Aerosmith record a cover version, only to be told by Perry that Tyler had been listening to his own band on the radio. You know you're messed up from drugs when... The album also features a cover of Bull Moose Jackson's Big 10-inch record, an old R&B song originally recorded in 1952. Rather than produce a rock version, Aerosmith's cover really stays true to the original song, right down to its jazzy instrumentation and arrangement. Tyler insists that he sings Sept on My Big 10-inch and not the X-rated lyric that people think they hear, but uh, he acknowledges that no one on earth believes him. Just like no one believed him that he forgot the lyrics in the cab. Yeah. No one ever believes Steven Tyler. Once all that stuff happens, nobody's going to believe anything you say. In 97, Tyler shares memories about writing and recording several of the LP's tracks with author Stephen Davis. Uh, for the song No More, No More, he said, The lyrics came from my verbal diarrhea, a mishmash that I made up and eventually changed the lyrics to something cool. About life on the road, boredom, delusion, holiday inns, stalemate, jailbait, my diary. Uncle Salty. He said Salty worked in a home for lost children and had his way with this little girl, and that's what it's about. I'm the little girl, the orphan boy. I put myself in that place. I'm Uncle Salty, too. There's a lot going on. Whatever that means. Uh, Adam's Apple, uh, he said, I don't remember anything except 
I arranged it and must have fought for credit. And I originally wanted to call the album Love at First Bite after the line in the song. So the album comes out, contemporary reviews mixed, as you might expect, as always, especially from Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone reviewer Gordon Fletcher compared negatively Toys in the Attic to Get Your Wings, which in his opinion was, quote, testimony to the band's raw abilities. He criticized Douglas's production and wrote that despite some good moments, the band did not avoid instances of directionless meandering and downright weak material. Robert Criscow was more positive. He remarked that the progress Aerosmith had made in such a short time, both musically and lyrically. The reviews, of course, as they always do, become more positive over time. Uh, all music critic Stephen Thomas Erlewine remarked that Aerosmith finally perfected their mix of Stonesy raunch and Zeppelin-esque riffing, thanks to a combination of an increased sense of songwriting skills and purpose, creating on the album a new style which, quote, fully embraced sleaziness in Tyler's lyrics, backed by an appropriately greasy music. In his review for Blender, Ben Mitchell found Aerosmith firing on all coke cloth cylinders on Toys in the Attic, praising all the songs on the album. The radio success of Walk This Way launched Aerosmith firmly into the ranks of those crossover rock acts, and they continued to broaden their fan base as they pounded the arena circuit in support of Toys as an opening act or headliner alongside a growing list of artists that include Ted Nugent, Foghat, and REO Speedwagon. They'd score even bigger hits later in their career, but Toys in the Attic marked the point of no return. Steven Tyler was quoted as saying in his memoir, this was the year it all changed for us. The album got good reviews, and people started taking us more seriously. But for Perry, Toys and the Attic's success wasn't necessarily a sign that Aerosmith had made it. Instead, he seemed to feel a responsibility to try harder than ever. He said, I wonder if I'm doing it right. If I'm actually contributing, are we doing something good or are we just followers? To a Cream interviewer at the time, he said, I don't know. Answering his own questions, we can go the BTO route, be a really commercial band, do the road trip. If you're keeping score at home, that's both the Guess Who and BTO now name-checked by Aerosmith in relation to this album. And of course, the Harlequin connection in The Producer. But to satisfy my own artistic needs, I wonder if the things I write, maybe I'm not getting better on guitar. Maybe I'm no better than your average guitar player. But I'll tell you, if I find out after a year or so more that I'm not improving, I'll just quit touring and work on my cars. I don't know this for sure, but when he made that statement, he might have been dipping into the drugs himself just a little. I think there's no shortage of uh, sampling kind of all over the place there. Clearly, in spite of the drama that would break the band up a few years later and continues to this day, Perry's misgivings about his own work have proven to be just his own skull goblins at work as the band is as big or bigger than it has ever been now 45 years later. Released on April 8th, 1975, Toys in the Attic has become Aerosmith's most commercially successful studio LP in the U.S., going eight times platinum. That's eight million copies sold. It also went platinum here in Canada with sales of 100,000 copies and becomes the latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker with 94.3 The Drive Music Director, Mike Young.